Hello folks, and we thank you over and over again for earing up the 23rd edition of Scoring at the Movies, the every other Thursday sports movie podcast. Our explorations are always drizzled with spoilers. I'm the wheelin' dealin', baby-making, worm-runnin', GM son-of-a-gun, Ryan Ellis, and here's the pancake-eating motherfucker, Chris DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. You know, that might be the nicest intro you've had for me yet. <laughs> pancake-eating motherfucker. Did you catch my Ric Flair reference in the I intro like for that. myself? And I gotta thank you, Ryan. I know that deal you made to trade up to the first draft pick and then take me over Joe Rogan in the podcaster draft. Even though you could have had me with the seventh pick, you still wanted to make sure. Want to make a splash. Yeah, you did. I want to confuse everyone and somehow magically it would all work out for me in a way that would never happen. This movie's like Wizard of Oz. It's a fantasy. (laughs) Even though I love it. It's every man's NFL fantasy, I suppose. And also somehow it got a PG rating. PG-13, I guess. Even though he says the dreaded motherfucker. Now, he doesn't say it in a sexual context. You can say fuck in a movie and get a PG-13 once if it's not in a sexual context. But this is motherfucker. You're not supposed to be able to see that word period in a movie. And if you do once, that's an R. But for some reason, they let them get away with it. Maybe because Ivan Reitman, Kevin Costner, they're involved in this. <laughs> you link pancakes. That's kind of a child's breakfast with motherfucker. Maybe it tones down the motherfuckering a little bit. I do like the image of some dude just chowing down on a pile of maple syrup soaked pancakes while trying to wheel and deal on draft day. Impressive that you have an appetite at all if you're under that much stress, but you're just mm. eating a sugar-soaked pile of carbs. And Tom Michael sleeps with the lights on. I guess you could argue that he <laughs> fell asleep while he was doing his job, but he is laid out on his couch as if he's ready to get some actual rest. Turn the damn lights off. <laughs> yeah, come on, be a little bit more environmentally sensitive, guys. Turn the lights off. All right, before we get into draft day, what are you drinking? What's the beer here? Ah, the beer. Today we're going with Bone Shaker. You know, there's surprisingly few football-themed beers in Ontario. This is the best I could do. It's not quite bone-breaking, but bone-shaking. You're the Vontae Mac here. The Vontae Mac of beers. <laughs> Does that make you the Bo Callahan? Extremely talented, but easily shaken under podcast pressure. Again, I'm the wheeling, dealing, baby-making, war room-running GM son of a gun. Woo! Every time I throw you a backhanded comment that catches you off guard, you panic and run in circles and then throw the mic out of bounds. <laughs> well, that is actually my nutshell. White boy is pissed that black boy is going to make more money than him. Well, Bo Callahan should have been picked first according to everyone, and yet for some reason he trades up, meaning Sonny trades up to get the guy he could have had at seven. I gotta take a little bit of issue with that, Ryan, because I think we both know that the pretty southern white boy will make a lot more money than Vontae Mack. Maybe not in his signing bonus at the draft. That's what I'm talking but about. But in endorsements and contracts, especially as a quarterback. Long term. Sorry, Vontae. It's true. You ain't making anywhere close to Bo. And I just hear myself in retrospect now a minute ago saying black boy, but I did say white boy too. So, and they're also young. They're both boys. They really are. I like the fact that Bo doesn't get picked first overall and just throws a childish tantrum and then leaves. What would have happened if the second team, I can't remember who it was on draft day, tried to draft him, they called his name, and he was nowhere to be found because Mm. he's out back with Sean Combs trying to drag him in. I also like the way he gets him back inside by telling Bo, NFL teams don't want a player that panics. Which is what he's doing. (laughs) He's not really panicking. He's throwing like a little hissy fit. I didn't get picked first overall. Harumph. And then walking out. And, oh, you're right. I got to show my uh, grace. This is worse that he sulks than panics then. I wanted to slap that guy so bad. He's a very enigmatic character. Bo? Bo Callahan, yeah. First of all, he's played by Josh Pence, who is the double in the social network. When Army Hammer had to act against Army Hammer... The other actor playing the other Winkle Winkle Winklevi, that's it. Winklevi, <laughs> Winklevi was Josh Pence, and they digitally put Army Hammer space to make them both be twins. Oh, so that explains why in the 3D version of that movie, when Army Hammer turns to camera and throws a hail mary pass, it's a perfect tight spiral because mm-hmm. it's not really him; it's Josh Pence. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. Ah, oh, okay. So you know, I mean, they definitely use doubles. And I don't know if they used actual game footage. It looks like it might be their own game footage. But when they show the guy who's supposed to be Vontae Mack, Chadwick Boseman, and when they show Bo Callahan in that game against each other, 
they look like they're actually under those helmets enough, and whoever is playing yeah. those two guys look fantastic. They do look like they're NFL-ready players. The footage looks great, and I would have sworn it's both of the actors going through the plays, but I struggled to believe Chadwick Boseman as a linebacker. Okay, that's fair. He's not that big, is he? No. If you told me he was a safety or something, I would buy it more because he's mm. a little bit more of that lithe, athletic kind of build, even though the dude's jacked, right? Linebackers, as far as I'm aware, are usually much bigger dudes, right? They may not be the line men that are 350 pounds, but they're typically large and mobile and extremely terrifying dudes. He's six feet tall, according to the IMDb. It doesn't say his weight, but... Well, actually, that is kind of short for a linebacker, isn't it? Six feet. He's probably like 185 to 200 based on his size. I mean, it seems small. But still, you don't see a ton of him in game footage. You only really see the four sacks of Bo mm. Callahan. And most right? of that so, could be some of the guy. He probably is. Because that guy looks like a real football player. And as good as Chadwick Bozeman has been in his career so far, he's played so many great roles already. A lot of yeah. real-life people. He's played Jackie Robinson. He's played Thurgood Marshall, the Supreme Court Justice. Has he? James Brown. And then, of course, this isn't real, but T'Challa and the Black Panther whoa, movies whoa. and I, Avenger. I thought you were going to say <laughs> the most high-profile and honorable of all his biopic roles T'Challa. <laughs> I will not hear of this Wakanda slander. The not being real? No. Come on. Wakanda man. forever. I'm doing the thing. The arms thing. What <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a career he's already had. If this guy somehow died in a fire tomorrow, which would be terrible, he's a terrific young actor. He's already had a hell of a career, and he's only, I don't know, 30 or so years old in all these great roles. You mentioned one of them. He plays Jackie Robinson. That's a movie we should probably... 42? At some point. Harrison do, Ford, yeah. one of his better, more recent roles, too, yeah. where he plays Branch Rickey. We'll have to space out the baseball movies a little bit, but that's, We've got that's so many well to cover. worth it. Especially this year when the Orioles and Indians, I think, are paying homage to, is it Frank Robinson? Number or 20 that recently passed away. The Hall of Famer for Baltimore and the, the first. Yeah, and the first black manager mm -hmm. in the major leagues With for Indians, Cleveland. Yeah. So it would be kind of fitting to do 42 to honor the first African-American baseball player mm -hmm. in the year that Frank Robinson's been It would be a solid it. movie, too. I didn't love it, but I thought it was a pretty solid film. Yeah. Certainly well performed by Bozeman and Ford and the guy who plays... Pee Wee Reese. This movie, I was surprised. This is a movie that you had seen before. Right, I didn't ask you that question. I don't know until right now what you thought of this movie. Sounds like you might have liked it. I, for some reason, like this movie a lot. I think I've seen it three times. I've seen clips of it so many more. When he wheels and deals at the end with Tom Michaels, I've watched it on YouTube probably ten times. I don't know what it is about this film. I'm a huge thumbs up, even though it's really illogical. We'll get into that stuff as we go along here. But what are your thoughts? I agree. I liked it a lot. Even though I'm not a huge NFL fan, I follow it here and there. And, of course, the playoffs and fantasy sports and all that kind of good stuff. But even so, the behind-the-scenes look, and I think a lot of this is because of Costner's performance. It seems like we spend a lot of time acting as Costner apologists in every one of the movies we talk about, but I thought he was really good in this role. One of his better, more recent roles, like I said about four minutes ago with 42. Yeah. I thought he portrayed very well and believably a guy that is under a shit ton of stress from multiple angles, right, personally and professionally, and just trying to get through the day and get to the most important day of his career, frankly, based on Frank Langella. Who's the... Frank uh, Langella's the owner. Yeah. The owner, yeah. So he gives him the ultimatum of making a big splash. Knowing your job's on the line, knowing everything that's going on in your personal life with your mother and your father and your partner, I suppose. Girlfriend, secret girlfriend. girlfriend. Yeah. It was really good. And there's many logical loopholes in this movie that, like you said, we'll talk about, I'm sure. And it did fall into a similar trap. It sounds like I'm a broken record because I always complain about the pointless kind of romantic angles. You're right this time. I like Jennifer yeah. Garner in this film. I think she could have just been the salary cap expert that she is in the film and not be a romantic interest for him. But even worse, actually, is his mother. Ellen Burson is one of the great actresses who's yeah. ever lived. And she's as good as she can be in what is a terrible role. Right down to the whole illogical, your father should be honored right now on draft day. Yeah. Sonny Weaver Sr. We don't know anything about him apart from what they talk about because he's been dead for a little while. But he would never ever expect his son or anybody in that Cleveland organization to deal with that on the day of the fucking draft. Exactly. His mother is illogically silly, stupid even, to insist on this. And then you see all the staff go out there with her. I guess they're worried about getting fired because she still has enough clout, I guess, because she is the GM's mother. Maybe she thinks that she can fire all of them if they don't listen to this. But that was something I thought was so irritating. That was one of the... I don't blame Burston. But I blame the no, writing. It made no sense. The family is a football family through and through. His father, Sonny Weaver Sr., was willing to die on the sidelines, right? And that's why Sonny Weaver Jr. ultimately ends up firing his father as coach is because his mother 
pleads with him to do it to save his father's life. Which didn't really do anything in the end because he died soon after anyway. Yeah, kind of like a, okay, that's an ironic kind of moment, I guess. But So the father would never have wanted it, like you said. The mother is tuned in enough to football, having lived it. One of the early conversations she has with Kevin Costner in this movie is going through Vontae Mack's tweets and talking about the draft. So she understands everything that's going on, the importance of it. She's on Twitter and Sonny's not. So she's more plugged in than he is. The father died a week ago. Why does it have to happen right this second, immediately after yeah. the reading of the will? They drove straight from the lawyer's office with the ex-wife to the stadium to pour the ashes. For God's sakes, wait four more hours until the picks are done and then go do it. Or the next day, or a few days later, because yeah. that's exactly what most reasonable people would want. That's There's right. another character that's wasted in this, is Rosanna Arquette, who plays the ex-wife. She shows up for that one scene, mm-hmm. effectively, and that's it. I guess she's in the line of people that go out to the field to dump yeah. the ashes. But, but she doesn't have a role. To... And she has maybe three lines. And it's not like she's some gigantic star, but she's a pretty well-known actress, and what a waste. Maybe she just did a favor to Reitman. Maybe she's an Ivan Reitman friend from long ago. I don't think she ever worked with him before, except this movie, but anyway. Yeah, you're right. It was an interesting role for somebody of at least her profile to do. With respect to that romantic angle and Jennifer Garner's character, I actually disagree with you on this one you like this one that would be going too far because it still falls in the pitfall of her having effectively no i don't like the word agency but she has no goals of her own she's only there not true this time actually really she's the salary cap expert on this team i know but the only time you see her actually performing that function is when Sonny turns to her and says, can we handle another five and a half million dollars under the cap? And she goes, no, yes, no. No, that's not true. When she's talking with the coach at lunchtime and at the end when she says, Putney, get Putney. She knows the Seattle roster, maybe a little bit illogically that anybody would know it that well, but she knows the other team's roster to think of somebody instantly. We should get that guy, too. Just yeah. fuck over the other GM. She knows football really well, and she even says at one point that she does. She grew up in it, she says. Right. She dedicated So I actually think that she's more useful in this than most romantic love stories have been. She is, but she's still but, not doing anything for her own benefit. She's doing everything to assist Sonny at the end of the day. Even down to the conversation with Dennis Leary, the coach, because he wants her to speak in Sonny's ear on his behalf because they're not seeing eye to eye right now. Mm. Not to disparage the character, because you're right, she's very intelligent and capable and does her job well by all accounts in this movie, but she still doesn't do anything except act as the second fiddle to Sonny for all intents I don't quite agree, but I see what you're saying. Okay, fine. I think she's actually somebody that if he left tomorrow, if he was fired by... Frank Langella's character, that she'd still have a job and she'd still be very good at it and she wouldn't give up on the job for him. If I would ask for something more for this character, it would be to maybe understand her own motivations a little bit better than what we're led to, or what we're given, rather, which is, I just love football and I'm here to do that. The first thing we see from her is her storming out of Sonny's house. At that point, we don't know why. Mm -hmm. We get drips and drabs of more information about their relationship and eventually find out, okay, she's pregnant, he's sleeping with her, they're having a baby together, he wants to keep it secret, she doesn't, she wants to have a... Their relationship's a secret, let alone the baby. Well... It's a quote-unquote secret, right? Because no, Dennis knows, Leary actually. throws it in his face. But it's not out there. It's not officially right. out there. I think I would have liked to understand her character a little bit better, but her existence served enough of a purpose that I enjoyed it, mostly because seeing her interactions with Sonny throughout the day, it was enjoyable. Because you see them interacting on a professional basis like you talked about, right? She's actually performing her function very well. And he asks her what she thinks about who he should draft, too. Yeah, so he respects her, and you get that. But then you get the scenes where he literally pulls her into a broom closet because they have to talk about their relationship issues because it's one of the 18 stressors that he's under today. The way he plays a man who looks like he wants to pull out his hair, he's just trying to sort of keep everything from boiling over. Those interactions I really enjoyed in a way that I typically don't in the romantic subplots that we see. I think they actually look pretty good together physically because she's still beautiful. She's a little bit older than me, Yeah, and he's quite a bit older than her. Yeah, I think she was born in 70 or 72. Well, let's just take a look right here. And I was born in 74. And this movie is five years ago. I didn't realize. 72, yeah. So she's a couple years older than I am, and she still looks fantastic. And, of course, Costner still looks great, despite the fact he's around 60 at this point when this movie was made. I think they won some kind of award for (laughs) most egregious casting of an older and younger person. We've seen that in movies for a thousand years, and this is actually one of the better examples, I think, not one of the worst, because they seem like they have pretty good chemistry together. And they don't look too bad together because... They're physically attractive. That's one reason why you cast a Jennifer Garner, who's pretty much a star. I would say she's not Meryl Streep or someone like that. But you cast her in a role like this where she doesn't have a... Well, I actually think she has more to do than you might think. But you cast a star because then we just right away know that's who we can relate to. We know her from other things. Juno, alias the TV series. She also, in this movie, figuratively puts out fires and literally puts out a fire. (laughs) Dennis Leary, if I'm ranking the characters or the actors that I liked in this movie, he was probably towards the bottom for me, to be perfectly honest. But when he torches the draft prep documents that they've been working on for months, 
Yeah, she comes in with the fire extinguisher, blasts the documents out, and then says, can I get you gentlemen a coffee? And then basically tells them to go fuck themselves mm-hmm. and walks out. That, I actually laughed out loud. Now, I didn't go over the particulars of the film. So it was released, like I said, about five years ago on April 11th, 2014. It wasn't very successful. It didn't make very much money. It was 95th at the 2014 U.S. box office. American Sniper, Clint Eastwood film, was number one that year. Bev and I have talked about that a few times really? already. And other podcasts, because we've done some 2014 films. We'll do some more as the year goes on, because it's five years ago. But yeah, American Sniper. I that guess The Heartland. Love that movie. Yeah, Clint Eastwood's film, illogically made $350 or so million. It was one of those years when whatever was released by Marvel was not the biggest hit. Obviously, it wasn't the biggest hit of the year, but it just wasn't as successful as the other films. And there's no Star Wars film or anything like that. I guess Star Wars, yeah, that was another year away anyway. Force Awakens was a year away. And its Rotten Tomatoes numbers are not too bad. 60%, so right on that cusp. Just barely a fresh tomato. Averaging, though, a little bit below 6 out of 10. So they rounded up. So this tomato had a little bit of discoloration yes. on the underside that you just have to pair off. For all those, you really got to dump the salt on to get yeah, it to taste yeah, out yeah. of And it's 65th with audiences, so I thought it'd be worse than that. We've covered movies that, well, I didn't like them very much, but I would have thought would be more popular with other people that didn't do well at all, that were just torched. Like Mr. Baseball, it's said something like 23%. I would have thought it'd be more like 35 to 40. And ready to rumble, that... Well, that one I wasn't surprised about, I guess, yeah. But this actually has better numbers than I would have thought. And you said a minute ago that everything seems to happen that day. It's a day in the life of the draft, the baby, the strife of the coach, because Coach Penn wants to quit at least once his dad's memorial. They jam it all into a movie that is basically one full day. We start at dawn and we end at, I don't know, midnight or so, something like that. They do show very briefly at the very end, opening day, when the Cleveland team is about to take the field for the first time with this roster. But otherwise, it's a movie that's a day in the life of. They were going to have the Bills instead of the Browns, and then the Jets instead of the Seahawks. Really? I don't know why exactly they didn't go that way, but if they had, and it's the Bills and Jets talking a big trade like this, then you got divisional opponents versus teams that really don't have anything to do with each other. Cleveland's in the AFC and Seattle's in the NFC, so they really have no reason to be conflicting. Maybe the NFL's not quite like the Major League Baseball teams are, where if it's the Red Sox-Yankees, you don't want to trade a great player, even a good player, because they might hurt you later on down the road. They play each other so much. But then divisional teams in football do play one-seventh of the season against each other. Division mates play twice a year. So anyway, I'm surprised that they even thought about having divisional opponents. Yeah. And there's this. there's playoff implications to right. dealing within your division, too. You might face them a lot sooner in the playoffs than you would face somebody in another conference. The actual 2014 draft this same year, so it was a couple of weeks after this movie came out, I guess, because the draft is always in mid to late April, I guess. Like this year, it's one yes. reason we're doing this movie. It's the reason we're doing this movie right now. The draft is in a couple of weeks. That draft in 2014, a lot of similar things happen as in this movie. If you want to read about that, I'll try to find a link on Wikipedia or something like that. It's just funny how that went out. And also, the clock, they talk about it, has expired on teams in recent years. I think it's actually in the movie it's mentioned. Minnesota in 2003 and Baltimore in 2011. How do you not pick... Well, then again, I guess what it says online is they made their picks. Or, sorry, they made their trades, but the other team didn't call it in. So, it's just... Wouldn't you be furious at the other GM for not getting that in in time? Unless the trade was right down at the very last second and they tried and they just couldn't get their phone call through. But I'd be furious at that guy forever. In the world of mobile apps and stuff, there has to be like a big red button that GMs could push or something to notify the commissioner's office that, hey, we've made a trade just so that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. You would think that there'd have to be some sort of compensation made from the GM's team that didn't call in a trade and it ends up costing you a pick or at least your picking position. Because it probably isn't deliberate, but even if it was accidental, that's a pretty big bonehead move. But that did actually happen in those recent years around the time of this movie. And it also references real players, the Browns especially. We see Bernie Kosar and James, not James, I'm going to say James Brown, but Jim Brown at the very end. (laughs) And they reference real players like Joe Montana and John Elway. You just show him the respect he deserves by calling him James instead of Jim. (laughs) Although I think his name actually is He feels good! Like we said, Chadwick Boseman played James Brown. And they used real logos, real teams. So obviously they had a deal with the NFL. I'm sure the NFL had all kinds of editing and veto rights built into whatever contract they signed before allowing the use of their product in this movie. But I still enjoyed seeing a movie that actually portrayed real teams. You go back to a movie that we did. Any Given Sunday. Any Given Sunday. Very good movie, and it portrays the sport very well and behind the scenes very well. I mean, as far as, as I know, anyway. But there was something lost to me, even though, as I recall anyway, they try to explain away the teams as a rival to the NFL. It's The new USFL. Exactly. That disconnect from reality, I think, just took a little bit away from the movie. Had it been Miami Dolphins versus Dallas Cowboys in the playoff game we see versus the made-up teams they have, it would have had more oomph. Exactly. It would have felt just a little bit more real. And I think that's one of the things this movie has going for it is it does feel very real. You've got these teams that you know so well, and they're calling each other, and they're wheeling and dealing, and you see the NFL draft. 
and all of those NFL personalities that pop up throughout the course of the movie, too. Not just the old players. They've got some of the current NFL stars, or at least at that time, current NFL stars. They even reference Andrew Luck as... Ryan Bo- Leaf. No, no. They talk about Bo Callahan as being the oh. most talented quarterback in the draft since Andrew Luck. But then draft... Draft bust. And Ryan, Ryan Leaf, yeah. right. Oh, he's a can't-miss prospect. He's who a missed? winner. Who, who, boy, did he ever. The Chargers, I right. mean, Andrew Luck at this point has missed as well, although he's supremely talented. He's just been injury-riddled at okay. least for the last few years. That kind of stuff, I thought, really brought something to the movie. Right. Injury-riddled makes me think of concussions in football, which is not an issue with this movie whatsoever. It isn't any given Sunday. It is in other football movies that we'll see. Probably eventually we'll cover something that has concussion issues. I think it's only our third football movie, Longest Yard, which doesn't really cover any of that stuff. It's not about that at all. It's a comedy set in prison. In fact, in that movie, they're instructing players on yeah. how to cause concussions. One. Yeah. Both sides hate each other so much. But it always will make me uncomfortable from this point on, not this point, but years ago on, to watch football movies or to watch football itself, which I almost never do. And I know a lot of football fans would say, well, there's other things that cause concussions too. And you're not wrong, but this sport is all about hitting each other as hard as you can over yeah. and over again. Thousands of times just to make an NFL roster, let alone go through that for as long as you do. I still don't know how these guys play on turf and get tackled and get sacked when two guys will nail a quarterback. 600 pounds crashes on this guy. How does he ever get up from that in the first place? So I have an issue with what we're watching in the first place because I feel guilty about it. But because there's not really that much football in this movie, and here's Costner's third movie we've covered. That's right. The second of three times he doesn't really play the sport. He does a little bit in Field of Dreams. He plays with Shoeless Joe briefly, but mostly he's a spectator. In this, he's the GM, but he's still a spectator. The only sport he plays of the three we've covered golf. is golf and Tin Cup, and Bev and I covered Bull Durham a couple years ago. Yeah, and I think that's actually a very good point because I probably have a little bit of that same sort of passive guilt about watching football these days now that we know what we know about concussions that you do. But you're right, this movie is not about the game itself. It's about everything that goes into creating a winning product and a winning team. One thing I didn't mention when you were talking about the team selected for this movie, my first reaction was like, really? The Browns? That's the team you chose? But the more the movie went along and the more I thought about it, I kind of liked that because the Browns are a team that is desperate to have a winning product because they have been record-setting futile. In fact, I think 2016 and 2017... The Browns won zero games and one game, respectively. Right. Those two years, one game. To see that team portrayed, and this is how we're going to get from a laughable state of mediocrity to a winning product, and understanding Cleveland's history with football and the Colts leaving on them, and then the, no, the, they went to Baltimore, is what it was. Cleveland the, lost their team right? to the Baltimore Ravens, though, not to the Sorry, Baltimore Colts, because right. yeah. the Baltimore Colts had the same thing happen to them in the '60s, maybe the '70s, when they went to Indianapolis. That's right. Yeah. So Cleveland, much like Baltimore, there are two cities that have this almost psychological trauma. That they probably still haven't forgotten in some ways, even though they do have franchises. No, they haven't. Well, the Ravens have won Super Bowls, and the Browns have at least got a franchise again. But yeah, they'll probably never forget. It. It's the scar from getting beat on by your father that maybe exactly. you've grown up now, but you still haven't forgotten about that scar that he inflicted on you a long time ago. That's right. And there's some really interesting sports. Or 30 for 30 type things where they talk to Cleveland football fans about that and how they feel about it and how they feel about the Browns and you're right it's almost like the Winnipeg Jets here in Canada right mm-hmm. there was like a 20 year period where they were just traumatized by the fact that the team up and left and now they're back and they're playing well again and they're the most passionate one of the most passionate followings in the league and they were even when they lost the team yeah that's right And I think you're right. The fact that the Ravens, since coming back to Baltimore, have won championships, I think that goes a long way to soothe that trauma. But Cleveland has not had that, right? They've got the team back, and then they've been wallowing in misery pretty much since the team's been back. They need a Sonny Weaver, Junior, to be their GM. So that kind of trauma and passion that comes across, you hear it in the radio shows that Sonny catches from time to time where they're just tearing him to shreds because of Mm. what they think he might do. It's understandable, and I think it actually added something to me in a way that, even if you had it in Buffalo, Buffalo has been a pretty mediocre to crappy team for about 25 years now, but they've at least had that long, unbroken stretch of professional football, and some success, even if no Super Bowl. When we were kids, they went to the Super Bowl four times in a row, and no other team can, maybe no other, well, very few others can say that. Yeah, I don't think anybody else can. They found some interesting ways to lose those Super Bowls, but still. That's true. Hey, getting there is pretty cool. That's why I've said many times about the Blue Jays, who are stinking now. At least we had, not that many years ago, I guess about four years ago, our team getting in the ALCS. And the way they did was exciting. I still watch clips of that. I still remember that. So no, they didn't win the World Series like they did back in the 90s. But we still have those recent memories. And it was awesome. And I loved it. And I still get thrilled thinking about it. And it's not that long ago. So live on good memories sometimes. Speaking of memories, just like Field of Dreams, which we covered not long ago, Kevin Costner has major daddy issues all over again. (laughs) They're not as 
poignant in this movie, I guess. Well, he had to fire his own father, though, and we do learn why, like you said. There's also a lot of setups and callbacks in this film, and I'd forgotten about this because I watched the clips more than I've ever seen the movie. I've seen the clips so many times, and in the end, whether wheeling and dealing, you hear the line, he says, you get to save football in Seattle, but before it was, you get to save football in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. So Michael says that early on, and then Weaver says it at the end to try to goad him into it. There's a lot of recurring lines and callbacks, especially in that last phone call. Sonny plays chicken with two GMs in the span of maybe 10 minutes and wins against both of them. And in the end, he gives up three second-round draft picks to get the first pick to get the guy he wanted in the first place. Writes that little sticky note that says, Vontae Mack, no matter what. Could have got him at seven, gets him at one. But then that guy gets a lot more money. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he wanted to pick him number one, because you get more money when you sign as the first draft pick, and that guy needs it. You see that he's raising his sister's kids. His sister had died not long before. That's right. And then he also gets the running back they needed, Ray Jennings, and they get that punt returner for three second-round draft picks. But how in the world does this movie work on me when I'm usually pretty critical of this kind of thing? I guess I like fantasy. He plays chicken with Jeff Carson. He's a rookie GM. Maybe that's why that works. But then I guess the reason why it works with Tom Michaels in the end is because when he says on the phone, you get the quarterback Messiah you wanted for $7 million less. Yeah, and, and whoever Chai McBride's playing, maybe he's supposed to be the president of the team. I was going to ask you that. I was unclear too. Because Tom Michaels is the GM, clearly. I clearly. think maybe it's supposed to be that McBride could be the owner, but more likely, you know, he's a black guy, probably not the owner in the NFL. He's uh, probably the president. Sad, but that was my thought too. Yeah, I was assuming president as well because I wasn't sure if I missed a line somewhere, but I was never quite sure what that relationship was, except that clearly Tom did answer to him in yes. some way. So he was, if not the owner, at least the president. So yeah, the look in his face. Oh, seven million less. That's pretty. And good. that's what puts it over the top. So seeing the movie yet again and watching the clips as often as I have, I finally do buy it. And yet at the same point, I can understand why a neophyte like yourself wouldn't. So did you buy the wheeling and dealing? And this the dumb luck that Bo ends up going sixth in the draft when he should have gone second or third if he wasn't going to go number one. Yeah. Now they do say one of the teams has a quarterback they don't need Bo, and you can understand that because they have other needs. They maybe needed a running back or a linebacker or something like that themselves, whatever it was, Arizona or somebody. But it's just dumb luck that Bo's even available that he could trade number six, number seven, and get yeah. Bo to go to Seattle where he would have gone in the first place had there not been any trade talks. So what did you think of all that? Did you buy it? Did you like it? I think I'm still undecided. I liked the early deal that he made that when Tom Michaels takes Sonny to the cleaners because Sonny is under the pressure applied by his owner to make a splash and get me Bo Callahan and all that kind of he stuff. He doesn't really say that, I don't think. I don't think he really wants Bo Callahan at that point, meaning He doesn't Anthony explicitly might, say it. Until he finds out about the trade that Sonny pulls to get the first overall pick, you're right, he doesn't do anything. At that point, that's when the owner gets the jersey made that says Callahan, even though Sonny hasn't said we're drafting Bo. Everybody at that point just knows that Bo is going to be the number one overall pick, so the owner makes the assumption. But the implication is very heavily laid on that you need to do something big at this draft, like getting the best quarterback prospect we've seen in five years or whatever it's been since Andrew Luck's draft. So when Sonny gets taken to the cleaners for the three picks, I was groaning inside because, oh, come on, man, that's a terrible deal. Go with the quarterback that you believe in, the Brian Drew character. But he panicked. He was under a ton of stress from other quarters. I get it. I would have sworn up and down that the ending of this movie would have been Sonny just picks Fonte Mack first overall, and then that would be the end of it. So when the wheeling and dealing began, I kind of enjoyed it. I would even buy the first deal to get the sixth pick from Jacksonville because he's taking advantage of the rookie mm-hmm. GM. And they show a guy in the room with Pat Healy's character, the Jaguars GM, who nods and say, yeah, we'll do that. Three second-round draft picks. Yeah. So he's approving. He must be some football expert. Assistant GM or something. Or but something. the GM is panicking in his own right. Jeff Carson is clearly panicked. Pat Healy plays panic characters very well, if you look yeah. up his film resume. <laughs> he's the one that does get taken. And then Kosser basically bullies him and saying, somebody gets made to look like a donkey in this thing. Don't let it be you. Yeah. So that I kind of enjoyed. That made some sense. And honestly, three second-rounders for a six-overall pick. Whatever. I don't know what the Jacksonville's theoretical team needs are in this situation. Oh, also, they do show that they're losing the people that they had in their mind. Although, you should have five fallbacks in the first round, I would think, especially when oh, you're yeah. with one of the top ten teams. Because the number five pick just went off the board. Or right, whatever, the phone, and it was yeah. their fallback pick, and they're saying, oh, shit, now what, what do I do? I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was also okay with the explanation as far as why Bo was still there. Okay, so the second and third teams drafting in that draft, they had the assumption that Bo was going to go first overall, so they weren't even considering them. They had their picks lined up. 
And when Bo didn't get drafted, they all thought, oh, shit, Sonny found something about this kid that he didn't like, so we're not going to touch him either because we haven't done our due diligence. And Sonny may be lying a little bit to Jeff Carson about, because he said it's a character thing for me. Yeah. It's never clear what really happened with Bo in his past, the birthday party thing, or if yeah. he really will be a panicker in the pocket in the NFL. Because he had a great game in the game where Vontae sacks him four times. But he seems like he's somebody you should take a chance on because he's so damn talented. Exactly. But I kind of like that ambiguity, too, because... Nobody ever questions his ability. Right? Including his old coach, old Sam Elliott. I was just waiting for him to end that call by saying, Take it easy, dude. You fuck <laughs> off, sonny, dude. I know that you will. I know that you won't. <laughs> <laughs> you motherfucker. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't swear. No. Nobody swears in this movie other than motherfucker at the end. Yeah, I've sworn a lot more during this podcast mm-hmm. than they were doing the movie. But nobody questions his talent. And the fact that Costner just doesn't buy something about his psychological makeup I kind of dug that because that does play a role more than ever before. I think you hear about sports psychology and you hear about clubhouse makeup and you hear about I think it matters chemistry. too. Yeah, it matters. Whether or not Bo might prove to be the greatest quarterback of his generation. He's still a young kid. Maybe he panicked in one game and that was it. Maybe his teammates were at the party and the cops just didn't cite them because they didn't want to, like Elliot said, jam up a bunch of good kids. That's probably what it was, in fact, in the end, yeah. yeah it's but kind of... also, Cleveland has a good quarterback. You only see yes. Tom Welling and. I guess two scenes. No, maybe three. Well, only but at the end you see him celebrating with his family because yeah. he realizes, oh, they didn't draft Bo. I'm going to be the quarterback after all. I do hate the line. I think it might be the first time we've heard it now in 23 podcasts. He's in the best shape of his life. You hear that yeah. all the time in reality with guys who've been injured or they got older and he's worked out all winter long or summer long, I guess in the case of football. And he's in the best shape he's ever been in. It's probably true, but it's also a lame line. It but is. they have a quarterback. But Sonny is keeping everything close to his vest. Now, what about that fact? He doesn't even tell Allie what he's thinking. He writes it on the sticky notes so we can see that he planned to do it all along that day. Yeah, I But did. why play it so close to the vest? I even with know. her. That didn't make a ton of sense to me. Just, what? you know what it is. It's the Hitchcock answer. Because otherwise there'd be no drama in this movie. Because everybody needs to be surprised. I watched the scene before you came over today, yet again. The first round draft pick scene. And I'll put the link on our website as well. Chadwick Boseman's reaction, the stunned reaction when he realizes he's picked first overall, is one of the best moments he's had in his career at this point. That whole sort of, I'm more famous now, I'm going to be richer now, I didn't think I'd go first. In some ways, he's trying to get, well, he is trying to get Sonny to pick him because he thinks he's going to be seventh when he's talking with Sonny early in the day. He probably never thought he'd get picked first. I love his reaction to that. We know exactly what that means to him, too, because of the conversation that Sonny has with the Seahawks later. I just saved you seven and a half million dollars, essentially, from the first to the sixth. So if Fonte thought he was going to get picked seventh and he jumps to first, that's at least $7.5 million. Maybe not for a linebacker, but certainly a couple more million dollars than they would have gotten in a signing bonus. I think it's all relative anyway. If you're a linebacker and you're getting drafted seventh, I'm sure you make probably $7 million. Now, whether that's now you're making $8 million instead of one, whereas a quarterback might make 15 or 20 instead of 13, I don't know, but... If it's anything like baseball, there's slot bonuses that are kind of laid out anyway, right? Oh, so, regardless of your name or your drawing your position, value. Or... Well, I don't know that. NFL contracts are way, way different. I get the drama aspect of it. Maybe that's just the only explanation. That's the only reason why it's in there. Although, to be fair to the screenplay, earlier in the movie, Sonny does have one of those closet conversations, literal closet conversations mm-hmm. with the Alley character, where he says something to the effect of, I haven't said anything at all, or I haven't made my wishes clear at all, and Jennifer Gardner's response is, well, maybe that's the problem. And I think that just speaks to his character's way of dealing with this relationship to date, is that he hasn't really expressed anything to her. He's closeted himself off. He hasn't told her what he wants in the relationship. He hasn't told her what he wants to do with the kid. He hasn't told her what he intends to do in the draft. He's trying to keep her very separate from... Right, personal, fair. professional, and all kinds of aspects. And the subtext here, of course, too, is that he's going to have a baby, a real one, but he's also going to birth this team, as he even says, my team. You just blew my mind, Ryan. I never thought of that until right this second. <laughs> when it comes right down to it, the way that the movie wrapped up, it kind of stretches my belief to the breaking point, especially that last trade with Seattle. But I think the other thing that you didn't mention that maybe allowed me to accept it even a little bit was when the news of Seattle's trading the first overall pick went live and you cut to Tom Michaels. There's a lynch mob out front. I think the way his character played that off, I mean, aside from the gag, do I really look like that? Pointing down to the lynch mob dummy. uh, He's feeling pressure too. He's feeling the pressure. And he knows that if this goes wrong for him, it could mean his job. And that was something he didn't expect. So aside from the fact that the president or whoever it is, is nodding to the fact that, yeah, okay, we'll save our team $7 million. He realizes that, Anything that happens, regardless of the trades back and forth, he still ended up with the player that his fan base wanted him to end up with. So it saves everybody's bacon at the end of the day. That said, 
Would it have been a better movie or a worse movie if you did away with a little bit of that melodramatic back and forth wheeling and dealing and just had Kevin Costner come to this realization a little bit earlier? He makes some trades himself for the first overall pick because we saw earlier in the day that Buffalo was willing to trade for the first overall right. pick. Yeah. I'm sure other teams would have been willing to do the same. You and know why he didn't do that one? He even says it's a good trade, but he's pissed that Coach Penn went behind his back. Dennis Leary's character said, not, oh, I got a deal here. No, I get that. And I'm not saying it has to be the Buffalo trade. It would presumably, for the sake of the movie, be a trade that brought back a first-round pick this year, somewhere in that 7 to 15 range, so that he can still draft Vontae. Vontae could still get the slot bonus that he wanted. And pretty good players he was going to get back. He could put in the lineup yeah. right away. So he realizes his mistake. He has that come-to-Jesus moment where he realizes that his integrity and the success of the team and what he believes in is more important than any sort of pressure that the owner puts on him and threats about his job. It also would have been an interesting moment if Sonny... Because he really does stick to his guns for the most part throughout this movie, excepting that one moment of panic when he gets taken a little bit. It would have been nice to see him stand up a little bit to the owner about his vision for the team. And when the owner says to him, I got to put butts in the seats, so make a big splash at the draft. You make a big splash at the draft, you might sell out a few extra seats for one or two or three games. I don't think the NFL suffers to have fans go through the turnstiles, do they? Well, that's Any the other team? thing. I don't think so. Same with the big college sports. Do they ever not fill those stadiums? And it almost doesn't matter because there's so much television money yeah. and advertising money that is spread through all the teams by the league that you could probably have an empty stadium for a year or two and, and it wouldn't still matter. make many millions, tens of millions. Right. And I think the other argument is, okay, well, I can make this shitty trade and get Bo Callahan or I can do what I know is right to build a winning team and we can go to the playoffs and you can get playoff revenue and you can sell out the stadium for another 10 years once we have a deep playoff run or two. Do you want three more games of higher ticket sales maybe this year? Or, long or do you term. want a longer term? I think there was a lot of arguments that could have been made that would have saved a lot of the headaches for his character, but the drama, right? I'm more convinced now than I was before that we've hashed this out. Why the three GMs do what they do. It does make more sense now to think about it. And same well, with the owner. The one thing that's most illogical... more sense. Okay, yes. Let's more, not say it makes sense. Because I said not that long ago that yeah. I thought it was all fantasy. But maybe it's less fantasy than I said before. The one thing that is completely illogical, but you need it for the drama yet again is that Frank Langella gets from New York to Cleveland in what must be 45 minutes. Not in any way possible. And then why is he not pissed? We still have Bo Callahan and they don't take him. But then I guess on the other hand, he said make a splash. Sonny is making a splash, A, by shocking everybody by taking Vontae Mack, but dealing up to get his first round picks back. And then he sees that they get the running back that they all wanted in the first place. At least that Coach Penn wanted, especially in the first place. They get two terrific players in the first round of the draft and they get a punt returner, so... I guess that's why he's not mad anymore. But when he even says, we could still have Bo Callahan, and then Sonny effectively trades him away all over again. Yeah. I guess I buy it more as I think about it again, but whew. <laughs> it also helped that the running back they drafted was the son of the former Browns Yeah, Terry legend. Crews. Terry, Terry Crews is a football player from long before. He's, of course, best known as an actor now. I guess what, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and he's been a ton of things. But he was a lineman in reality. He never played for the Browns. No. But it's a touching moment. Those two characters have very little screen time together. There's another guy with some baggage. Ray Jennings' character got into some kind of gang fight. Yeah. But he says he's fine now. But I love the emotion he shows when he realizes he's going to be drafted by the Browns. That was Arian Foster, too. A superstar for about a two or three year stretch. Oh, God, I'm going to get this wrong. I think with... it was with the Houston Texans. Oh, okay. Not well, the, the Cleveland Browns. The laziest but... nickname in the history of sports, probably, is Houston Texans. <laughs> <laughs> I miss the old Houston Oilers. At least that, that made was a, a good bit nickname. more sense. I think you're right. It makes a little bit more sense. I did enjoy when the, the owner did miraculously make it back from the draft room in New York to the draft room in Radio Cleveland. City Music Hall yeah. to probably downtown Cleveland. In the space of, what, four picks had taken place, I think, before... Probably, yeah. Let's on... say they all stretched it to the full ten minutes. It's now been 40 yeah. minutes. But he walks in and starts ranting and raving, and Costner's like, let me work. Talk to the hands, Frank yeah. Langella's character, and he just kind of passively says, oh... Okay, I'll stand yeah. in the corner over here. I could fire everyone in this room, but okay, fine, I'll listen to you. So that's a little bit of a fantasy all over again. That one's harder to explain than the draft wheeling and dealing, which I think we've actually talked ourselves into. I've talked myself into believing more than I ever had before. I like the touch, by the way, that the coach wants the running back all along, and he gets him. The owner wants the quarterback, doesn't get him, and the GM wants the linebacker. So they're never really truly in sync. And even at the very end of the film, when Costner and Leary are on the stage about to bring up their two new draft picks and Langella's on the stage too, they all celebrate together, there still seems to be tension there. And Costner even says to Garner at one point that he wants his own team, but he doesn't even have his own coach because Penn started coaching there before. Wait, well, how did that work? He hired him, but he was pressured to, I guess is what it was. So, yes, he did literally hire him, but he didn't want to hire him. Exactly. 
I like that conversation between Jennifer Gardner and Dennis Leary's coach character in the lunchroom. Dennis Leary shoves his Super Bowl ring in her face and says, yeah, mm-hmm. I come from Dallas, and Dallas wins a lot, and points at the ring. A, does Dallas win a lot? Not in a long time. For about the last 25 years? Not really. And B, her line that she finds it ironic that mm-hmm. the most macho sport awards jewelry to the winners. The most tacky jewelry there is. Fantastic. As well, the Super Bowl ring, and also the World Series rings. I've seen Pat Tabler, the yeah. Blue Jays broadcaster, has always got it on, or often has it on. It looks so tacky and terrible. It's not a good look. It's not cheap. These things cost a lot of money, but they don't look good at all. I think they're worth something like $30,000 or thereabouts. So and James Brown, as in, I feel good, would look good wearing one of those. But he would. Most people don't, really. You mentioned they weren't really in sync. I'm glad that they weren't ever in sync. I think if they all had that moment where they all saw the light and were convinced, mm-hmm. that would have taken away. And they still are when the movie's over, I don't think. Not really. really. If you follow sports in whatever city you're in, and certainly in Toronto, at least with, with respect to hockey, mm-hmm. and with the other sports, too. You hear all the time about how much influence this person or that person has over the decisions being made, whether it's the president, whether it's the head coach, right? Dennis Leary says to Sonny, don't you think you should keep me in the loop? And the response he gets back is, no. Mm-hmm. My job is to get players. Your job is to coach them on the field. That's true. We're going to cover Moneyball at some point, And that's the same conversation that Billy Bean has with Art Howe. Yeah. I understand the argument that, okay, the coach knows what they've got on the field better than anybody else, so they should provide input. And I'm sure he has, though. I'm sure he's given reports on every player he has on the team, what he feels the strengths and weaknesses are. But at that point, it's up to the GM to make the call about what they feel the best route forward to building a winner is, knowing what they know about what the coach has already told them. They never really were this in-sync crew that all came together at the 11th hour to pull this out. And as always, Costner's underplaying. He's never been a big overplayer actor. He's never been a forceful actor. And you can tell he even says to the intern, there's a character I could dump though, by the way. He doesn't know his place at all. But anyway, that Rick guy, at the end he says, why'd you say that? But whatever. I was pissed. Yeah. I think he means in the whole day, not just in that conversation with Tom Michaels. He's pissed at Coach Penn. He's pissed at the owner. Yeah. He's pissed at a lot of different people. But Coster being Coster mostly keeps it inside. And you can't really even tell he's raging, I wouldn't say. But there are times with Dennis Leary, he probably wants to flat out fire him. And of course, Leary at one point does quit. I can't imagine quitting and walking away from a $30 million contract, but still, yeah, he quits. And you're right, that Rick character seemed a little bit there only to provide comic relief for some reason. No other purpose. He's marginally funny, I guess, but he's just annoying. Know your place. Okay, fine. That actor plays Arthur, I think, in the new Tick series as well. He does dorky and confused very well. I find it hard to believe that on draft day, any GM would be okay with being assigned some like random intern that has no clue what's going on. And somebody's sick, so I guess that's why it happened. Jennifer Gardner says, I need person X, Y, and Z to help me with my cap calculations. Fuck that. I have way more important draft day stuff to do. You can make do with the intern running your calcs for you, right? Now, you said Kevin Costner is understated in this movie, and he certainly is. He's got that low-grade, simmering rage thing happening for most of it. I like the fact that his mother shows up and goes through her whole thing of, we have to spread your... The one time he does show anger and he throws the computer across the room. Why is the intern's computer sitting in his office and the intern is outside? Mm -hmm. And why is Costner grabbing this random computer? That's not mine, but fuck it. Oh, I can see that. He's trying to make a point to his mother. But you're right. Why is the laptop that belongs to someone else in the GM's office? (laughs) And Rick's response to that was the most ridiculous thing in the world. It was like a five-year-old kid trying to glue back his laptop that is in pieces and... Why would somebody do that? But Sonny takes the time to feel bad for him, which I guess in some ways is a nice touch. He doesn't really have the time for that shit, but he's still a human being. He feels bad about the fact he wrecked this guy's property. You ask, like, why is that character in this movie at all? Probably, aside from some really not great comic relief for this one moment, I think this was really the beginning of Sonny's redemption arc is this moment right like his son that he's going to have with jennifer garner all grown up oh my god brian am i doing it again i'm blowing your mind my mind i just managed to put it back together much like (laughs) rick putting his laptop back together and you blew it again he shows a little bit of humanity towards the intern that he'd been slagging along with everyone else all day long that was the first little pebble on the avalanche of realization towards you know what character is important integrity is important i'm going to go with the guy that i believe in both from the perspective of brian drew the existing quarterback and vonte mack all that to say shitty character but it might have a little bit of a purpose yeah okay we mentioned already that ivan reitman was the director he's also the producer on this film it's the last movie he's directed and it's been five years but he does have triplets 
which is supposed to be the sequel to Twins in the works. So it's Schwarzenegger, what? DeVito, and Eddie Murphy. You haven't heard this? I haven't heard Eddie this. Eddie Murphy be the triplet. That could be fun. It also could be ridiculous because you wait 30-plus years to do sequels, and look what happens. They almost always suck. But I'll probably watch it. Reitman's got a lot of shit in his resume, but he also has Ghostbusters. Bev and I covered that a few years ago. And, of course, Twins and even Kindergarten Cop's kind of fun. And I do like this movie, for that matter. I love his creative use of split screens. We see a ton of that. Just get people on screen at the same yeah. time. Interesting wipes, I guess is how you do that. Well, it's just visual effects. but And it's got a pretty good pace, too. Despite the unnecessary stuff, the family subplot, his mother, the romance. Well, maybe that's not unnecessary, but I kind of thought it was. The pacing was very good. And the movie itself was only about 90 minutes long. Maybe no, 100. not quite two hours. It's almost two it's hours. A, I felt like I had a good pace, though. It must have done, because I thought it was There are a lot minutes, of characters so. in this, too, to jam into two hours. I don't think too many people get short shrift, especially the major players like Costner and Leary and Garner and Langella. There were some interesting swipes that were actually very reminiscent, I thought, of The Longest Yard. The final right. football game, yeah. you get a lot of those interesting little square swipes coming in from the side. You didn't have the ability to do the effects that they can do in this, but they basically have the same motive in play, don't they? I don't know if that was an intentional callback to an iconic football movie, but I thought it played well. It was visually interesting without being distracting, and it was brief, right? They didn't ladle it on. It was kind of interspersed here and there. It gives two people talking on phones, despite the drama that's already there, even more tension when you see them both on screen, and they're moving around on screen a little bit. This movie was just laden with that guy character actors whose names i will not for the life of me ever know but you say oh i know that guy from this and i know this guy from that veep characters for instance right there's the, yeah jonah ryan yeah jonah ryan the big character. tall guy and is it the press secretary in veep the guy that meets frank langella's character yeah. at the draft right and it's kevin dunn who's also in dave which is another movie by reitman is with it? both langella and dunn they play the guys who hire dave to play the president okay and they have a brief interaction on the screen together again yeah it's true kevin dunn is in this is right and sam Elliott. we already talked about is in the movie for maybe two minutes and you already talked about terry cruz and a lot of football people who are people. like chris berman and john gruden they were the part of the, they're the ones we see on screen first and hear their voices first Dion sanders yeah. is in this yeah. Now, the screenplay is by two guys I'd never heard of before, Scott Rothman and Rajiv Joseph, who only have a few scripts total on their resume. The one thing I have to call them to account for more than anything else, because we've had some issues with the movie, but we both did like it. But the line that Tom has during the climactic deal, I'm one more crazy shit show from insanity. Who the fuck wrote that line, and what does that mean? What? I'm one more crazy shit show from insanity. I didn't even remember that line. Because that that's what no Tom sense. is saying when Sonny first calls him. Tom thinks that Jeff Carson, the Jaguars GM, is going to blow it, and he's going to get to pick Bo anyway until Sonny reveals, I've got the next pick. And he says, I'm one oh, crazy shit show. Yeah. The dialogue at times is a little bit questionable in this movie. The other line in the movie, actually, that's maybe even worse than that one, come to think of it, is when one of the sports guys is talking about how Sonny pulled all this off. And maybe we've convinced ourselves that he could have. But that guy says, if Sonny wants to do all these things, who might argue with that? It's a sports talk show. Everyone's wrong but you. What are you talking about? That's the way these things are. If Sonny had gotten 15 first-round draft picks and spent $10 to get it, he's still wrong and you're right. I didn't think about that. That may be the biggest fantasy in the whole movie, actually, is the way it ends where everyone's finally saying, hey, it's great. We didn't get this superstar potentially, but we got these people we probably didn't really know much about, the linebacker and the running back. The NFL guys know, the Coster people behind the scenes, the Browns people know that those guys yeah. could be great players, but the general public probably doesn't. When they show the reaction when they don't pick Bo first in the Cleveland bars and whatnot, people lost their minds. Yeah. So later that day, they're completely fine with it? Really? And just like we saw the lynch mob outside of the Seattle Seahawks head offices when they traded away the first pick, when the Cleveland fans hear that they got the first pick and are assuming they're going to draft Bo, you get all the shots of them in their makeshift Callahan jerseys and partying yep. out front by the Browns stadium. So you're right. All of a sudden, they're okay with it. Some of them probably are. But not but, that many. Not, not all that. of them. No, sports fans in general are not necessarily the most understanding folks in the world, and I include myself in that. I want to be the guy that runs the feel-good sports talk show in the city that doesn't rip on anybody, just says, you know what? If Ryan thinks that's the thing to do, let's just give him time and let him figure it out, guys. Fantasy. Before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit more about Costner. I was looking at his resume, and I didn't know he had five movies released in just over a year in this time frame, from January 2014 to February 2015, because this was April of 2014. Five films. None of them really succeeded. Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit, I think, was the most successful at the box office, and that was expected to be a bigger hit than it was because it is playing off the Jack Ryan legacy, and it wasn't really a hit. He's been acting more the last few years than he had for a little while there. I think because he was making that miniseries, the Hatfield and McCoys, Hatfields and McCoys, That's whatever right. it's called, miniseries. That was about three years he didn't make a movie. And maybe he took a bit of a break as well. But he's acting a lot more lately, and he's been pretty good in some of these things. I thought he was actually quite good as Superman's dad in Man of Steel, and then the little cameo he has in 
must be Justice League, I guess, or one of the Dawn of Justice, one of those. I've done nothing but be a Costner apologist and defender mm-hmm. this whole time, and I guess I'll continue to be. I think part of that is because his truly schlocky and terrible movies I've either never seen or... You saw him and you're never going to see him again? Yeah. In like, your rear view. The Waterworlds and Postmen movies of yore I watched 20 years ago when I was like 14 years old. They've purged themselves from my memory at this But the point. ones we've talked about that were really good films, especially the sports movies, and then the JFKs, Dances with Wolves, and many others, will always have those, and they're damn good movies. Exactly. We still could do For Love of the Game. I don't think we will, but it's another sports movie he was in, and I feel like he was in at least one more, but we've already done, between you, me, and Bev, four Costner sports films. I will go on on a limb, Ryan, and say that before he is done, he will be in at least one more sports-themed movie. Oh, probably, even though he's in his 60s, I believe, now? That is Looking the nice thing about transitioning in role from player to GM, executive owner, whatever the case may be, like he did here, is like you can keep playing these roles until you're... What, 70, 75 yeah. older, right? When you're not a player yourself, it's true. Yeah. So how was that beer? I am shaken to the core, Ryan. <laughs> My bones have been thoroughly shaken. I am woozy and sleepy. It's a hell of a beer, then. It's tasty. I enjoyed it. It's a good choice. How about scoring at this movie? I think, well, if the thought of all those concussions gives you random, uncontrollable erections, you personally, <laughs> then sure. And Costner and Gardner, despite the age difference, I think do look good together, so it's romantically inspiring in a way, I suppose. More than most movies we've covered. Does it make you want to buy a rose and have a nice romantic evening out? Is that it more so than it makes you feel all hot so. bothered? Garner is a babe. Garner is and a babe. I think babe. she could be a damn good actress. She was in, just like Elliot was, Sam Elliot, in Jason Reitman, Ivan Reitman's son's Juno, not that long yes. before. Wait, maybe Elliot wasn't in Juno, but he was definitely in Up in the Air. Maybe I'm thinking of that. But Garner, of course, was in Juno, and she's got some of her best moments in her career ever in that film. Yeah, I enjoyed her in this movie. I thought she was quite good. And like you said, she's a very attractive woman into her 40s now. So we can score. I'm going to try to restrain my uncontrollable erections every time (laughs) I think about concussions. The concussions give you uncontrollable erections. Oh, (laughs) jeez. So in two weeks, we're going to cover another fairly modern film. We said we cover movies from our youth, but... We can't really find a boxing movie we want to cover that much, so we are going to settle on one that's 15 years old. Million Dollar Baby, also a woman lead, Clint Eastwood film, and a movie that's not really about boxing in the end either. There's boxing in it. Have you seen it? You have, right? Ages ago. Okay. I think when it first released, I watched it. I loved it when I first saw it. I've seen it more than once, but I haven't seen it in a long time, so I'll be curious to watch it all over again. That's becoming a theme for us, that the sports movies that we talk about often have not a whole lot to do directly with Field of Dreams. Yeah. This doesn't really have that much to do with the sport. This really does, except it's not on-field stuff. And Million Dollar Baby, there's plenty of boxing, but the last 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is, nothing to do with boxing at all. Yeah. And it was a shock when I first saw it that it went that way. I'm at MovieFiend51 on Twitter. He is at Scoring at Movies. The website, topandunderproject.com. All right, well, then that's it. So take your easy... Wait, Sam Elliott's in this film. I could do legit for once. Take your easy, dudes. I know that you will.